0: Welcome to Loving the Snow Life, the podcast where our snow resort obsessed mums talk everything snow. You'll learn stuff including ski school, is it worth it, how to get the best travel deals, what snow gear to buy, sustainability and much more. Some mums love the Kardashians. our mums love ski documentaries. Between them, they've skied 84 snow resorts and they've dragged us to plenty of them. We're not complaining, we love it. Over to you, mums. Gosford is a coastal town an hour north of Sydney, Australia, and it's nowhere near the snow. It's more popular with sailing enthusiasts. In the 1990s, an Aussie sailing family could hardly have guessed 27 years later they'd be celebrating the success of one of their four children at two Olympics and multiple World Cup mogul events. And more oddly... Watching him stand on a World Cup podium, holding a Crystal Globe in the middle of a global pandemic. Welcome, Matt Graham. How are you enjoying Hello. quarantine?
1: Um, it's been alright. Today's day seven, so I'm about to tick off a big milestone and go into this, the final week, which would be nice. Um, but yeah, it's been hasn't been too bad so far. I'm currently in um, quarantine, quarantining in Sydney, uh, which is good. Good, because my parents, you know, being from the central coast, are able to come and drop off some deliveries at the hotel lobby. So um, I got some stuff from home, which is nice. Um, yeah, it's been reasonably comfortable and keeping busy.
2: It's very yeah. So, um, have you got your uh, crystal globe with you in quarantine? Did you get to bring that home?
1: <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, so it's um, it's quite big and heavy. So I actually had to travel home with it, and it just fitted in my backpack. So yeah, I managed to take it on, on the plane with me, and um, and yeah, it's kind of currently sitting underneath the TV. Awesome!
2: So, for our listeners, can you explain what that crystal glo- globe is? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, re- so recently, the um, I won the crystal globe, which is awarded to the World Cup overall champions um, for that season. So, this past season, um, yeah, we're able to travel around the world and compete uh, numerous numerous events in Europe, um, America, and also in Asia, and. Uh, yeah, so at the end of the season, I managed to finish on on the top step, which is pretty cool. That is amazing!
2: Congratulations, like incredible for a winter Australian athlete. Like that is obviously we're thrilled for you. Um, yeah, you must a lot of hard work to take to get there. We were talking to Topper yesterday about your about kind of the preparation that the Australian athletes had to have this season in a COVID year. Um, didn't sound fab, but they kind of did the best that they could, I guess. From your perspective, what was it like this season compared to kind of your other 20?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, totally different. Like, I guess everyone's years been different, you know, not just athletes but the general population as well with lockdowns and restrictions and not being able to travel and go on holidays as much as most people would like to. And for us it was more or less, um, you know, we had quite a few phone calls and meetings with the Olympic Win Institute of Australia, which is our kind of, sporting organization before we left and that was in october november we had these meetings They're basically saying like it's your decision if you want to go over um and we're you know, happy for you to go over and give you the exemptions required to travel um but basically they just outline what it, the season is potentially going to look like as far as going over there and you know the protocols that we're going to be under basically living in a in a little bubble in the north of finland um for
2: two wow. and a like half three
1: months and um at that point you know there was this world cup schedule so we had like we had a bunch of world cups on on the schedule that we're planning on going to but they but basically at that point you know nothing was confirmed because things were changing so fast So more or less um we kind of just had to go over there and expect that we're potentially going to go to the north of finland and train for two and a half months and then and then uh come home once we get tired and over it but um no, it worked out pretty well. Obviously, we were able to get some events off and uh, get a season out, which was cool.
2: Yeah. Um, but, yeah,
1: definitely different travel experiences, like, from everything, going, even just going through Sydney Airport was wild. There was just a ghost town and on the planes, you know, there's just you go on, like, a large aeroplane to Europe and there's for the first two flights there was, like, maybe 20 people on board.
2: That is
1: really strange. <laughs> mm, bizarre.
0: Who were you allowed to take with you?
1: um who, like uh, like personally
0: oh, like coaches. sport crew you know yeah which coaches or who came with you
1: um so we have basically just our normal team came with us so we, there was uh 11 of us in the mobile program um that's including staff so we had uh physiotherapist which is my sister and then um three coaches and then how uh, many athletes after that eight athletes or something yeah
2: so the bubble in Finland was it just in a hotel as well, or could you go into an, an area with it like a house, or was it you were stuck in a hotel?
1: Um, so we're in like over in Finland. It's you mostly stay in like little self-contained apartments, two-bedroom apartments, um, <laughs> and yeah. So more or less over there, and I mean we could go to the supermarket and stuff, but mm-hmm. to get food, but we weren't allowed to go to um, go out to breakfast or coffees or anything like that. So wow. it was pretty much. Um, we strict strict instructions as soon as we left the apartment room, you know, face mask on, like sanitise, everything when you come in, when you first walk in the door. And then um, when you go into the grocery store, you know, spenders go down there with a plan of what you're going to get and, uh, you yeah, know, be in and out of there as quick as possible.
0: No yeah. browsing.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no browsing really. Um, and that was pretty much the gist of it for a long time there. And, to add on to that, the north of Finland at that time of the year is um, uh, its right up near the Arctic Circle yep. and we get about three or four hours of daylight during the day yeah. from about, and it's not even really like a daytime. It's like the sun kind of comes up and goes along the horizon for a bit and then goes back down. So it never really, lo- like, never really gets light during that time of the year from that uh, end of November through to like the end of January. It's just basically dark the whole time. Mm. So, and most days there'll be like a bit of a mist or haze. So yeah, we you, it's probably like a few weeks there where we didn't see the sun.
0: And I guess that would take quite a while to adjust to, wouldn't
1: it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've been there, uh, we go there every year because that's generally where the World Cup season starts in Rookup.
0: Okay. Um
1: so we go there usually three weeks before the World Cup to train, and then we go to the event and then we'll move on elsewhere to other events or to training locations around the world where it's little bit less depressing and there's a bit more daylight like yeah, in the yeah. US. But this year, obviously, um, that oh. resort we go to in Finland is pretty isolated and not many people come in and out and Finland are actually doing quite well uh, as far as like their uh, like managing the the COVID pandemic. They, they weren't getting too many cases and they were all down in Helsinki, basically. Mm-hmm. So that was, probably, it was quite a safe place to go for us. Um, and yeah, we managed to, so far to this point, we haven't had any COVID cases amongst our team, which is, Pretty remarkable considering, you know, we ended up flying all through the US and where things were kind of going crazy.
0: Were you were you able to boost your immune system with your vitamin D and stuff like that while you were there?
1: Um, more or less just making sure we ma- maintained a healthy diet, like was probably a big key for us. And then um, obviously, you know, we weren't going out. So usually after events, there might be like an after party and stuff like that and and you might go out and go to the pub and, and get on the booze and the um i know i find the booze always kind of kills my immune system a bit so often if i have a big night out then shortly after that i guess come down with a cold or a flu or something so yeah not, not being able to go out and, and do all those sort of stuff you normally would i think and being so isolated and in a little bubble i think really helped to our uh, i guess keep our immune system intact and no one really got sick we had my teammate manager anthony she got sick for a little bit there but um, it wasn't COVID, it was just uh, she was a bit run down, and had a bit of a cold for a week or so. Um, but besides that, everyone was pretty much healthy and uh, fighting fit the whole time.
2: Wow, that's amazing, like how, how COVID has affected different sports, different areas and kind of fitness and health and, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I'd like to give up the booze to not <laughs> to get healthier.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a big sacrifice, but it was, um, I don't know, uh, I definitely feel better for it, I think. So it might yeah, say a, something about the alcohol.
2: It is. It, it says a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on a on a random note, did you get to see the Northern Lights? <laughs>
1: um, this year we didn't actually. I mean, we didn't really go out and go look for them. Like it yeah. would have been out there for sure. Did you like, see Santa Claus? <laughs> um, he was there for our event. He actually usually, because we competed there in Rooker in uh, early December and they have like a big Santa Claus guy come in and he brings along a reindeer and stuff. Like it's pretty, it's pretty strange place. Like mm-hmm. you would just be driving down the road, and it'll just be like, I don't know what they they're called. Like a mob of reindeer just walking down the road, and oh, wow. they're like farmed. So people actually own them, and they're like tagged. But it's not like in Australia farming where everything's fenced off. They're just roaming around, and they I guess they're like GPS tracked, or they apparently they always just come back to their owner. Wow,
2: mm-hmm. free range, free range mm-hmm. reindeer. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so when, when you first started like back in I guess or what was it 2009 is that when is that one of your first years you started
1: or? yeah it's kind of that's kind of when it really started to ramp up that was when I like 2008-2009 year that was my first year going overseas to compete on the Europe Cup tour yep um, and then from there it's yeah it's really ramped up
2: yeah so did you ever see when you're a little kid growing up in Gosford that you'd be in Finland looking at reindeer like
1: <laughs> um, not that specifically but <laughs> I had a general gist that you know that's the walk-up tour and the olympics was that was kind of where I wanted to go and that was my plan
0: how did you start out like being from Gosford how did you even get into this did you just your family just like the snow
1: yeah so being from the coast obviously not many people go to the snow really like so many of my friends had never even seen snow when I was growing up and going, going to school but My dad skied a little bit when uh just recreationally when he was uh growing up with his buddies and then he eventually convinced mum to learn to ski just after not long after we were born I'm the youngest of four kids and um so then mum kind of fell in love with it and then took us all down to the snow when I was three years old for a family holiday um and we're fortunate enough that my grandparents had a unit in Jindabyne on Townsend Street and just just a little two-bedroom unit so we um yeah we started out going down there for a holiday for two or three weeks a year. And then um, when I was seven years old, we joined the Perisha Winter Sports Club program. Um, and it kind of went from there, really. We started competing out kind of in a school level. And. Were all
2: you guys just into it? The four of you into it? Yeah, or it you... was,
1: we were all yeah. pretty into it. I mean, we all, we all gravitated to the Moguls very quickly. Um, so we started out, we did a little, we're in like a general Devo program at Perisha. So we got a bit of a taste of everything of kind of, you know, um, alpine, slope style and uh, kind of just general skiing and the moguls. And um, we all pretty quickly gravitated to the moguls. I mean, this was in the, this would have been early 2000s, like 2002, 2003. Like back then the train parks weren't that great and the jumps weren't that big anyway. Um, And the alpine is what the alpine is, but so the moguls, I guess we all liked that kind of technical element of skiing, which you kind of see in the Alpine, and then we also, like the jumps in the moguls at that time were basically as big as what the, the uh, train park jumps were. So we kind of got the jumping element and the skiing element and the moguls kind of combines all that, which I guess we all really enjoyed. And then... Um,
0: were you doing other sports at the time as well or by that stage were you only focusing
1: um, at that point, it was all just, it was kind of, we didn't really have any grasp on what it could be or what skiing as a sport was. I mean, yeah. obviously, there was the Olympics for skiing, but at the, when I was seven or eight, I didn't know too much about that. Um, it was more just, we are just doing it for fun. And I actually, we actually grew up sailing. My parents grew up uh, on the water at Gosford, and sailed at the Gosford Sailing Club. And so they put us all into a... Uh, like through the kind of a sailing program at Gosford. And we actually competed a lot as a kid um, for sailing and went and travelled around Australia, um, competed at the national title level um, sailing events.
2: What kind of sailing? Was it like skiff or like a bit bigger?
1: These were just small little dinghies. So we sailed in a boat called a sabo, which is like a little eight-foot boat. It's generally a one-person boat, but when you're younger than 12, you kind of have two little kids in there because you don't have enough weight to hold it upright um but then later on we kind of got into the skiff sailing for the 29ers and now my, my brother still sails 16 foot skiff so every time there's a uh, he needs a filling i'll try and jump on board if i'm around but um it's a bit hard for me to keep sailing at the moment uh just do yeah. it when i can yeah, yeah nice
0: and where all your uh your brothers and sisters uh, what have you got what brothers what have you got
1: so i got Goes my eldest sister, Eliza, who's actually a team physio. She's in hotel quarantine with me, but in a different room, obviously. And then um, so
2: she's,
1: so she's the eldest sister. And then um, goes to my brother, David, who's just turned 30. And then um, my next oldest sister, Heidi. So we have two girls, two boys. Oh, Nice
0: and, nice and even. Were yeah. you all showing a talent and a keenness?
1: Uh, yeah, we're all pretty into it. I mean, the... Like Dave was quite good. He um, you know, he competed on the World Cup tour for a season and world championships. And then um my sisters were kind of in like development squads for a little while there. Um yeah. and then um my two sisters kind of drifted off a little bit earlier, but Dave stuck it out for a while and then he hung up he hung up hung up the boots in about 2014, right after I went to my first Olympics.
2: Oh wow. So he's in amongst it while you were there as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we grew up. I mean he's probably been one of my biggest role models in my whole like not only life but skiing career like growing up and always chasing your older brother I think's helped me a lot (laughs) helped me develop a lot as a young kid and growing up and I was always more or less you know I was chasing around the backyard but I was always chasing him around the ski mountains too Mm. and um yeah like like my dad always says you know he kind of paved the way and he kind of paved the way for me to more or less just walk right on through
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true. I how, I love that your family is all around you still. That's pretty amazing, and I guess that helps with a lot of your preparation. And when you, because you are, how many months are you away from home? Like,
1: yeah. So generally, in a general year, I'm usually away from home, being Gosford, um, about three hundred days a year. Oh. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah.
2: um,
1: I must you know, help
0: having your sister there too.
1: Yeah, so she's so she's been like the team physio for the last maybe two years or at least one year, maybe just coming up to two, I'm not sure, but she's, um, yeah, two years. So she's been around for a little while, but before that, she was kind of a bit of a team physio and a coach for um, the mobile skin academy,
2: um, OZMSA.
1: So that's like an academy, high performance academy team that helps, um, I guess, kids transition from that club level to the institute level uh, in sport. And so she was a coach and a physio for them for quite a few years and then just after the last Olympics got the, the OWIA gig as um, one of the main physios there.
2: Wow, congrats to her. That's awesome. So yeah. so let's go back to how you transferred from the Winter Sports Club and what was your pathway? Uh, like, so I
1: was in, in the Winter Sports Club from like seven until I was uh, probably 13 and um, that first year, like, when I was 12 or 13, obviously, I started to show a bit of talent and, and drive for the sport. So the coaches, in particular Topper, um, kind of, I guess, singled me out and pulled me into the, at that point, the N-Swiss, which is New South Wales Institute of Sport team, was running a little thin. You know, a lot of the guys were getting older, so I kind of moved on with some of the older guys and wanted to bring in some, some fresh blood and, and, um, and young guys and girls. Who they were targeting for the Sochi Olympics and also the Korean Olympics, and um, and I was one of those athletes, so I got quite a lot of opportunities with the n Swiss program at a young age. You know, I was on I've been on scholarship with n Swiss since I think I was in, on their emerging athlete scholarship when I was twelve, and then wow um, um, on like a full contract, full uh, contract with them from when I was thirteen. So, so what so, does that
2: mean? What does a full <laughs> contract mean for the kids? Like, is it
1: basically just you're, you? They give you the like the resources against with um, athletes So you have coaching and all of a sudden that you have, like, strength and conditioning coaches and physios and stuff mm. all looking out for you. And so you just have all this extra, um, I guess, support.
2: Yeah. So. But 14, that's fairly, okay, now we're real. Like, did you feel like I can't let anyone down now or was there a little bit of pressure when that all happened or no? Just- uh,
1: not really. I mean, at that point I knew where I wanted to go. Like, the Olympics, I'd already got like, Ever since I was not long after we got into I, we got into skiing and realized I realized that the Olympics was a thing and I was good at mogul skiing, which was probably when I was like nine years old. I kind of already calculated that you know I was going to be like a late teenager at Sochi at the Sochi Olympics, so Amazing. that was my plan. That was basically my plan to go there, and um, it was weird. I mean, it was always like I guess a lot of people say like the Olympics is your dream and you want to go to the Olympics, and it, and it was for me too. But like in my mind growing up, it was never really a dream. It was more or less like in my mind I knew I was going to go there. So it was more or less just about just continually work and try to get myself, put myself in the best position to actually do well at those events.
0: Do you know, it's interesting you say that, that you know, that whole concept of manifesting is believing that it's already happened. is really, that's a really good example of of that exact thing when you want something so badly you just assume that you've already got it.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was. um, I think that's been a big key for me when I was when I was young, was having that. uh, I guess that confidence, knowing that it was going to happen, and now I just need to work really hard and and do it.
2: Yeah. So when you got to the Olympics at Sochi and you realised I'm in the finals, (laughs) were you like, "Yes, here we go." (laughs) It
1: was. um, Sochi was, yeah, like great. Like first Olympics, I was. Not long, 19 years old, and I was this up and coming guy, and that's when the pressure really hit. Like the 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 week leading into the event, like I've never experienced kind of pressure and nerves like that before. I was, um, you know, the butterflies for that whole week was like nothing I'd ever experienced. Like couldn't sleep, and um, and anyway, so for that first qualification of round, I was, um, yeah, massive butterflies and was really nervous and pretty tense. I managed to put down a run and, and scrape through into the finals. In I was in 10th place, so I missed didn't have to do the second qualification round. Went straight through to the finals, and then um, it was a couple-hour break and went into the finals from there. And, I, and once I got into the finals, it was definitely like a big weight off my shoulder at that point because my goal was always to be competitive there. And, you know, if you make the finals, I guess you can say competitive. So yeah. it was a bit of a weight off my shoulder, and I was able to, go out in finals and and really enjoy it and have fun. And so I managed to make it through a couple of rounds in the finals and finish seventh place there, which um for me was kind of right where I was. You know, I'd i had I had two fourth places leading up to the event, uh, leading yeah. up to the Olympics. I got a fourth place in uh, the first World Cup of that season. And then also the World Championships the year before I got a fourth place. So um I, make, and I was that? kind of I was kind of around that, I guess 13th to fifth place range. So seventh place was kind of right in the sweet spot for me. Um and at that point I was you know obviously young and up and coming, and my jumps were a little bit behind what they needed to be for me to really kind of take them, take it to the next level and start pushing for a podium. Um so to walk away from that with you know a lot of confidence and and to be happy with how I performed was uh, definitely a relief and kind of met the met the goal there.
2: So then you came back and you worked, you you realized, okay, jumping is what I'm lacking. So Yeah, we always knew
1: like like we've been working on um, with my jump coach at the time, Jerry Grossy, he's an American guy. We um, were working in the background on higher jumps and harder jumps. Um, but we decided for the first Olympics, like let's just go there and you know, not to try and throw How Mary and try these new tricks that I've been trying. Let's just stick to what we know, what we know can work, and then um, because in Pyeongchang, that's when I'm going to be 23 years old and, uh, you know, a lot stronger and more mature and ready to go there. So I think it, I think that was a good play from my coach's part to kind of make sure I went away from Sochi on a good note as opposed to trying to throw a Hail Mary and then just yeah. blow it out and, you know, be really disappointed and, and I guess, scarred from the, from the experience.
2: Yeah. So when you're sitting there as, a, as an athlete and you're thinking, okay, here I am at Sochi... Your coaches are already thinking of the next Olympics or the next World Cup. Is that kind of like you can't, do you ever get to just live in the moment?
1: <laughs> well, during yeah, during every event you're in the moment. But like obviously yeah. there's a long-term plan and, and uh, strategy behind everything. And, you know, my coaches are, in particular, my head coach, Steve Desovich, he's a bit of a mastermind with that. You know, he's, he's a track record. He's an American guy as well. And he's track record with athletes. He coached Dalbeck Smith, who got a okay. gold and silver medal for Australia. He coached Jen Hall from Canada who got a gold medal in Torino in 2006 and then he also worked with the Canadian team throughout the 90s and got multiple medals and gold medals at Olympic Games and World Cups there. So he's he's got basically more experience in the sport than everyone and kind of knows how to really, I guess, knows the pathway that athletes need to go on and he kind of put me on that pathway. Yeah, that's
2: awesome. So I've got a... Um, a girlfriend who lives at Deer Valley. I was a ski instructor at Deer Valley for quite some time. And, and um on the 6th of Feb we got up together and she was uh it was she was on Zoom and I was on Zoom and we watched yours and Michael uh, hit it out at Deer Valley. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. was like, damn you, damn you, Michael. <laughs> no. <laughs> um how was how was like Deer Valley is one of my favorite places to watch the moguls. Um is it one of your favorite places to like? Do Jewel is do you...
1: it's um yeah Deer Valley's a special event for basically all mogul skis. It's like you know they had the, the it was the venue for the two thousand and two Salt Lake Games, so obviously it's just kind of a state of the art venue. Um, it's a really hard course, and very steep and long, and you know Deer Valley's very high altitude. It's over two thousand meters, so that comes into play as well with your fatigue and managing that over the course of the week. Yep. Um, and I've had a lot of great experiences at Deer Valley. Like Deer Valley was. Um, it was the location for my first World Cup when I was 15 years old in 2010. Yep. And then um, it was also the location where I got my first top 10 result in World Cup and my first podium and then also my first um, World Cup victory.
2: Yeah. And also
1: my first World Cup uh, World Championship medal. And then this year it was the spot where I got my first yellow bib, which is when you take the uh, leaders, the, I guess, the top spot in the World Cup tour, Um, which actually – got me in the globe so that was uh pretty special yeah.
2: but yeah there's a lot of
1: firsts there and generally in a normal year Deer Valley, like it's a night event and they have this massive crowd of probably about ten thousand people right there at the bottom of the course and the atmosphere mm-hmm. is like nothing we don't really experience in mogul skiing a lot so mm-hmm. it's um pretty special and it's a really fun and challenging course and it kind of suits me i think so i've had a lot of success there in the past
2: yeah it's amazing i i I've actually skied that. I don't think I'd like to ski it with the moguls that are on it, though. <laughs> I'd probably cartwheel halfway down. Um, <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, so so do you like the dual or the dual salem or do you like it when you're doing single? What's best for you? Like, what?
1: Um, Generally, like, historically I've been a better single skier. Like, um, singles is, they're very different as far as, like, yeah. how you approach it and how it's judged and scored. So singles is judged, um, you know, there's like a set criteria and the judges are all looking at you and judging you know your turns and your jumps and then there's a time component as well whereas in duels you're more or less judged against your opponent so you kind of throw a bit of like cleanliness and uh technique out the window in duels and it's more or less you know it's a race to the bottom and try and keep it as clean as possible and staying so um i personally like singles it's a bit more like I'm a bit of a perfectionist, and it's kind of fits that mold a little bit, and it's also the Olympic discipline. Um, but jewels is great too. I mean, this year I was, you know, my the jewels is what kind of carried me through the season. I got a world dual mogul, um, World Cup victory in Sweden at the okay. third event of the, seat, of, of the year, and then also, um, got second in Deer Valley against Mikhail Kingsbury, and then, uh, more recently in Kazakhstan, got a silver medal at the world championships in dual mogul. So this year, jewels. Actually, pretty good for me. But generally, it hasn't been my my pet event. The uh, singles has kind of been my um my go to. Have
0: yeah. you got you good know,
1: knees? Uh good knees, good hips. A little bit, a, sore, a little bit of a sore back, but it's um it's not too bad.
2: <laughs> How do you keep that going? Like your physio, is she hard on you? <laughs> your sister?
1: <laughs> uh, oh, she can be. I mean, we have like it's not just my my um, sister who physio's the team. We got, they sometimes they have like a network of physiotherapists the OWIA do, and they um so they'll send you know if we go on a camp for three weeks, they'll try and send a physio with us, and um you know it might be a a physio who works in a practice but is kind of in the, the physio pool network. Um, it's not always Eliza, um, but yeah, so we we get exposure to a lot of different physios. Um, Yeah, okay. More or less have different techniques, but generally the gist is, you know, we kind of know what happens when we start skiing moguls if we haven't skied them for a while. Generally, our backs flare up. We get what we call mogul back. And if you haven't skied moguls for might even be two weeks and you go ski, you know, a big training day, all of a sudden you get out of bed the next day and you have like, it's like the two, like, I guess, you you have like two cylinders of muscle on either side of your spine that just lock up and grow like, yeah. Like another 30 percent in size and they just get really sore and achy so the physios a lot of time are kind of rubbing them out and
2: yeah. try to manage
1: that for a little while and then you adapt and your body gets used to it
2: yeah definitely well, it has to doesn't it <laughs> it's what you yeah. love <laughs> yeah.
0: so you're, you're in quarantine now where's your headspace at now are you just trying to do you give yourself a bit of time between where you were and where you headed or do you not do you are oh. you're focused on the next thing
1: um, so basically, you know, now we're pretty much 10 months out from the next Olympics. So we're kind of focusing on that. So whilst we're in here, we're trying to take a bit, use this as a bit of downtime and recovery and rest, but also we have, um, a bit of a program and we're trying to exercise as much as we can in here. So we don't, I guess, detrain. Um, cause basically once we get out of here, we need to get straight back into the gym and into the, the physical preparations for the, you know, the year ahead. So it's pretty, pretty full on from here on out until the Olympics. Um, but I also have – I study at the University of Newcastle, so that's keeping me busy during the downtime here, which is quite good and making the days go a little bit faster.
0: What are you studying? What's the
1: uh, I'm studying a uh, double degree in civil engineering and business. So last year I just finished my civil engineering side of the degree, which has taken me since just after Sochi Olympics in 2014. And then, <laughs> yeah, now I'm going – now I'm diving into more of the business stuff.
0: Mm. Would you recommend that for other athletes and young athletes to just have that ticking away on the side? Do you yeah. do you like having that?
1: I really do. Like, you now obviously, athletes generally like learning. It's like what it's, you know, you learn outside when you're on the training hill and when you're in the gym, and then you can also take that mentality into your schoolwork or your uni work. Um, so I try and kind of harness that with what I'm doing at university but it also for me is like a good mental switch off when I'm at home and you know it forces me to go out and see people and attend classes and meet new people and stuff like that so um, I kind of like that when I get home mm-hmm. and then it's more like it actually works really well with our with like winter sport schedule because during from you know the end of November until late February early March is our big summer break so that's mm-hmm. when we're overseas competing and everything's full on and then, when you're at home um, during our the off season training, like that's when the university year is calendar year. So at that point, you can kind of just manage your uni and your sport. And I mean, universities are very uh, lenient with athletes, and they all have programs and are very supportive with that stuff. And then, obviously, modern day technology. I mean, we're doing a podcast over a Zoom, Zoom right now. Like, wasn't <laughs> really a thing eighteen months ago. So it's um the way technology has changed and adapted has allowed, um you know, most universities to have students study abroad.
2: Yeah. yeah. So when do, you, when do you think you'll finish your course?
1: Uh should finish at the end of next year.
2: Oh, well done. That is was huge, a yeah. double degree while being an Australian athlete. <laughs> it's yeah. inspirational. It's definitely inspirational for a lot of kids out there to just say, hey, this is what you can do. Just don't yeah. sit still. And, and not ru- <laughs> ruling anything out. I mean, it's... I wouldn't
0: have been surprised if you'd said you were studying to be a physio or something that was within your industry, but just to not rule out any, any course.
1: Yeah, no, it is funny that night. When I, I remember going through school and during year 10, year 11 or 12, when you're putting in your, your uni preferences and at that point, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And um, my mum was trying to be like, oh, you know, like you like sport, like maybe you exercise science, blah, blah, blah. And I thought about it and then I was just like I do enough sport <laughs> I don't really want to do anymore as far as like it's kind of it'd be nice to do something a little bit different and then also because I know it, you know I've, I've learned a lot I guess from my coaches and stuff like I probably just would and I'm a little bit stubborn I probably just would have questioned like everything the lecturers say so <laughs>
2: yeah
1: it's pretty good I, was, I did something that I knew very little about
2: yeah so so would you consider like um uh, like after you you go into your engineering or whatever role you go into there but would you consider we stay within the Olympic world and be the mentor to the kids coming through is that something that you inspire to do
1: yeah I think definitely I think I'll always be a little bit involved in um not only mobile skiing but winter sport um like obviously when I finish skiing and hang up the boots I'm gonna have to get a real job at some point um and that will take a lot of time out of my life. But, no, I'll still be down in the snow probably every weekend during winter and yeah. try and be involved with, you know, the Winter Sports Club kids and the inner school stuff because, like, I remember when I was a kid and seeing, you know, the likes of the world's best training and skiing in Perisher, that really motivated me and, like, kind of put, like, the ben- that kind of set the benchmark. So at that point I knew where I had to be and where I was. And then I just, from there it was just kind of, and all the steps to get to the, those top end athletes. Um,
2: yeah.
1: So I definitely want to be involved as much as I can, and I think I'll keep competing. I'll yeah, probably yeah. I'll probably keep competing at like the Australian titles until I'm like forty. I
2: right love now. that. <laughs> Do you, what about most the people don't
1: like it because it, like if you don't ski all year and then all of a sudden you come into a mobile course, like you get so sore and tired. But I don't know. I can't see myself not competing, so I'll probably try and stick it out for as long as I can.
2: Yeah, good, good, because it keeps you fit, I guess.
1: Do you and hopefully ever do- at some point I'll start to fall off and get worse and, you know, until that point, you know, I'll be keeping the young kids honest.
2: <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're trying yeah. to do that with our kids now. I have a 16 and 14-year-old <laughs> and they're like, what, mum? And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm a ski instructor, do the ski instructor turns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they haven't overtaken <laughs> us yet, but it's got to be any day now. <laughs> yeah, do, you, do you ever pull out a long carve turn? Or do you like? Because
1: you always do short turns. We love we love corduroy. Our skis don't allow it too much. I mean, if you lean them over too much, you just because they're very thin. I mean, I think our skis like sixty-one underfoot. Oh, really? Yeah. So when you lean them over, you just your inside boot just boots out, and you just hit the deck. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not ideal, but a lot of if the corduroy is really nice and it's good pitch, you can you can rip in pretty hard on mobile skis. Do you ever get time to just?
0: Do a bit of hiking or anything like ski, um, snow hiking.
1: Not really. I mean, we barely get any time to free ski. Like,
2: yeah,
1: when it's our day off, we're you know we're trying to rest and stay out of the boots, and then um, by the time we finish the camp, we're pretty ready to get out of the snow and have a sleep in my own bed. So it's, um, <laughs> I think, I think I'll okay, get. I definitely want to get into touring and stuff after, after the next Olympics. Like so that seems really cool and a lot of fun and. You know, I guess just going out and exploring is, is pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's oh, something i think about probably after the after scheme.
2: Yeah, yeah. The mountains never leave you. <laughs> you kind of you leave them for the real world, but they keep pulling you back.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine.
2: <laughs> um so what sorry just going back to your equipment. So how soft are your boots? Are they firm? Like what what is what would you say kids as a, if they're learning how what do they start with? Where do they go? Like um,
1: they- like when you're a kid, you, you're probably in a pretty soft boot, obviously, because in moguls you need to be able to flex the boot. Yeah, um, yeah. But these days, because I'm, you know, a little bit bigger and heavier and um, stronger as a skier, I, I ski in a Dalbello Krypton Pro, which yeah. is a 130 mm-hmm. flex, um, and that's a three-piece boot. A lot of mogul skis tend to gravitate towards the three-piece boots, whether that's full tilt or the um, Dalbello. Yeah. Something, some kind of something to do with the flex. I don't know if it's One is still
2: a, like a quite a stiff flex, though, isn't it? For moguls, I would have thought, like probably not as yeah,
1: a... it is. Um, mine's probably actually a little bit less because I run a slightly softer tongue than what you get stock. So it's probably more like a 120 or 110, but um, but yeah, there are athletes out there, a lot of teams, like a lot of US athletes and uh, like Japanese, the whole Japanese team, they're all in four buckle boots as well.
2: Wow, I remember the good old Brightley's that you know <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah.
1: well they're still the exact same but now they're just the full tilts.
2: really oh funny, yeah. funny.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh. um so do you with the kind of getting back to australia and all the new facilities That's kind of exciting for um australian kids coming through because then you spent a lot of time in park city did you doing all the training kind of because that was the only facility that we had
1: yeah yeah so we had in australia like we have a little facility down in Melbourne, in in uh, Lilydale, kind of on the outskirts of Melbourne, and um, you know it's an old facility now. It's been, it was stayed of the art one day back in, I guess, probably the eighties um, for aerial skiing and whatnot. But um, these days it's a little bit run down, and kind of, and you jump into a dam, a dirty little dam down there, but it serves its <laughs> purpose pretty well.
0: Um, <laughs>
1: but over for the past probably I don't know at least fifteen years, maybe even longer, more like twenty years. Um, Jeff Henke from the OWIA uh, has been really pushing to get um, funding and stuff to build a newer state-of-the-art facility in Australia. Um, And that's actually recently been built last year in um, Brisbane. So now we have a great facility for aerials and moguls. And also, I mean, free ride and train park guys can go there for sure and learn a lot and um, aerial awareness and where we jump into a pool up there, which is really nice. So historically we've had to you know train down in melbourne and also go overseas to park city in utah to train at the utah olympic park on their facility there so now we have this facility in brisbane it's going to be a, you know a 365 day facility we can go up there whenever we want and um, jump in reasonably warm conditions and a nice heated chlorinated pool so that's very exciting and um takes yeah, the edge off. But i mean one less trip overseas is just it's just so much better i mean it's like, in, we're not at home necessarily up in Brisbane, but it's easy enough to jump on a flight these days and come back home for a weekend or whatever.
2: Yeah,
0: that's yeah. true. true. So what's the next 10 months towards Beijing look like for you? Uh,
1: so with COVID, no overseas travel, whereas normally there'd probably be a couple of trips between now and the end of October. But, um, yeah, so once I get out of quarantine, we'll go into a six-week kind of strength prep and fitness program and then we head up to Brisbane for probably about six weeks where we'll jump into the up jump into the pool up there and then shortly after that we'll head down to Jindabyne around probably early-ish July maybe July 10 July maybe mid-July depending on the snow conditions Mm -hmm. and then we'll train out of perisher for uh, two months or so until probably Mm mid-September and then after that we'll probably um, shortly after that we'll head back up to Brisbane and do a bit more ramping and and then we'll be likely to head overseas and start off our season probably in Sweden in uh, early November. And then from there we'll basically be on tour until the games.
2: Wow. So when so how long do you get in Beijing before you actually have to perform? Did you get a couple of weeks? Do you
1: um, no? So we'll be we're competing and in qualifying events all the way up until like the very end of January. And then basically after the last event in January, that's when all the teams will be finalised and then basically you basically fly over to Beijing. I think it's on the 5th of February. So we don't have long at all. We'll fly over, probably have a few days rest, get into training and then compete for a few days and then get out of there probably. Maybe hang around for a couple of days and then get out. Mm.
2: Wow, well, it's a busy schedule, isn't it? It's like a busy life.
1: You, you're not in... You... Yeah, yeah. I mean, not norm- in... In uh the past the past two Olympics, we've been able to fit in like a little kind of pre-Olympic camp somewhere. We usually do that in the US. But uh, this year, uh, these Olympics are maybe like a little bit earlier and the way the schedule is doesn't really allow for that. So kind of once we get on the road at the start of January and and are competing, that'll pretty much be it at that point. You know, you gotta you gotta run with what you got and um uh kind of go from there and try and maximize, you know, your potential in that regard. There's not really any more time to develop skills or mm-hmm.
2: technical stuff yeah as a um professional athlete when you're going on to you, you finish your season on top of the world now which world champion which is incredible do you think uh oh now i'm at the top who's chasing me do i do, do you not worry about them do you just think about your own game like getting a- um, especially when you know there's a beijing olympics coming up like is that
1: i mean the- no, i don't really i don't really have to deal with it too much at the moment like I'm more or less just focused on what I what I need to do and what I can do yep. in training, and then um, you know all that stuff's just kind of background noise. So I try not to listen to it or yep. dive That's too much right. into it. It's kind of just focus on myself, and you know, in my in the back of my mind, know that everyone else on tour is working really hard, and you know, if I want to beat them, I got to work harder than them. So mm-hmm. kind of take that approach to training.
2: It's great advice for the kids out there, I think, and the parents. Yeah. yeah. What do
0: you, do you say to the young kids that are listening to this, and they're they're not, you know, they're back, maybe at the club competition, kind of, you know, what do you what do you say to them? They're just thinking about whether they want to specialize or not.
1: I think you know they got to obviously think about whether what they want to achieve out of the sport and whether they want to, you know, if they're willing to put in the work to make it to the top. I mean, the opportunity is there for them. it just comes down to whether they want to do it or not. And um yeah, really just if they want to, if they want to do it, it's gonna they got to realize that there's a lot of work involved and a lot of sacrifice for travel and everything. Um, but at the same time, they got to make sure they're enjoying it. Like for me, it wasn't for a long time there, I was I was working really hard, but I was only doing it because I was having fun. And the better I got, the more fun I had. So that kind of motivated me to continually work hard. So I think if they can make sure they enjoy what they do, then um that's obviously going to help a lot.
2: Yeah, awesome. Were your parents a part of your success? Did they just go, okay, this is up to you, mate. We'll we'll back you all the way. Um, or did they sometimes have to go, you're really good at this, keep it going.
1: <laughs> um, I don't think they really had to push me too much. They, yeah. I they kind of knew I was pretty driven in, in the sport and where I was going. Um, they were a little bit more involved with my sailing stuff like because they grew up sailing so they knew more about it whereas you know once we kind of got the winter sports our program it wasn't long before we overtook them and as far as like skill level and stuff so like uh with all sailing like my dad really was a big influence and pushed me a lot and kind of coached me and stuff like that um but yeah I was actually a full-time national champion as a kid for sailing so they um well, wow. so a lot more involved in that, and, and and kind of pushing me for that. But once we got into skiing, and we knew that that was the path that I was going to take, he um, that kind of took a back back footstep and more or less just spectated. But obviously, they were there supporting me as far as you know, like with obviously the financial side of things because it's expensive. Um, but then also just just being there, for, being there for me whenever I needed and stuff like that
2: yeah awesome
0: love that that's the bizarre thing about when you have kids you just never know what they're gonna end up being good at you know mm-hmm. your family from Gosford and being into sailing wonder if your parents could have picked that that's just so random really
1: yeah it's pretty bizarre Logals. yeah it
2: yeah is. you probably got your brother to thank for that though <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I mean i pretty much followed him and everything like like the first national tile I won a sailing I was like I was a tiny little grommet I think I was I was I mean, I was seven years old as well. And um, he was just going into year three at school. And we sailed that little eight-foot dinghy and we sailed together and he was a skipper. And um, and then he he eventually went into the older classes and then I kind of kept going along. But he was, uh, yeah, so I kind of followed him through the sailing and then he decided on skiing that he was going to get into skiing because he was obviously got selected in N-Swiss um, when he was a teenager. And, and then I more or less just followed him along. And he he even did a civil engineering degree, and at the at the moment in uh, as a project manager. So,
2: oh, hilarious. We can both get into building better ramps and better facilities for Australia for our winters. Yeah.
1: <laughs> was, well, I mean, we've had that done now. I and mean, Scotty Neller is ex ski cross athlete. He was the project manager for uh, Brisbane Water Ramp facility. So
2: having yeah. that kind of,
1: I guess that skiing knowledge helped a lot with the project and making sure. Everything was done right, um, but yeah, no, he he did a lot of good work there, Scotty. It's yeah.
2: good to know that there was a skier behind it, you know, not just someone going, "Oh, oh
1: yeah, I think totally. it's good." It <laughs> gave us athletes as a a lot more confidence because I mean, you can see it on a piece of paper and be like, "Oh yeah, that's cool," like you just put it together. But you know, you got to be able to look at step, take a step back and look at it and be like, "Yeah, that that should work," and that that's a smooth transition, a, a smooth transition and a good jump, jump shape and everything. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they did a really good job there. Mm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, just to finish off, we always ask uh, what is your favourite resort um, in, in Australia and overseas?
1: In Australia and overseas. Well, I guess I grew up skiing in Perisher, um, So Perisher is probably my, because it's my home resort, it's my favourite. Um, and if I was to go to the favourite resort overseas, probably go... Maybe Deer Valley, just because generally I've had a lot of good experiences there. I mean, we don't get to see a whole lot of the resorts most of the time, which is unfortunate.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah. Either there or maybe Steamboat. Like, I skied there a little bit as a kid um, on, like, the Rocky Mountain Tour, so I got to see a little bit of that resort. But but I do like Deer Valley. I mean, it's pretty. It's a pretty nice place. And actually, most of the time, up until these days, like, we went for a free ski day there this year and it was crazy busy, like, we basically ended up just staying on the front run because we had lift priority being with our uh competition accreditation.
2: But so <laughs> yeah. if you we went over yeah. the back,
1: it was the lift lines were insane. I think mean, I guess mainly because of the icon pass and whatnot.
2: Yeah, COVID yeah. Oh, there's your, there's your nurse. Oh <laughs>
1: no. Yeah, So that was my that was my um, daily COVID checkup call from the nurse. So sorry. Right.
2: <laughs> That's all right. No worries. Yeah, big stick. Big stick is one of my favourite runs at Deer Valley. That was like the home run for me of finishing the day. I was like, yeah, I get to burn. <laughs> yeah. I'll be teaching intermediate. Yeah,
1: the snow call in Utah is really good as well. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It is. Well, we are thrilled that you took out the time to speak to us. Um, we'll be following your journey at Beijing 2022. I'll be up in the morning giving my Canadian friend, Sheila. Here we are again, <laughs> Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're hoping that you, like, your next 10 months preparation is amazing and that we see you on a podium in Beijing. But, yeah.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And, um, obviously, it's great to share my experiences and, um, I guess, for for everyone out there, it's, it all has to start somewhere and, um, you know, the, the opportunities are there. you just got to kind of be willing to put in the work and try and have fun along the way.
2: Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tennille. If you've learned a handy tip or two, then happy days. To catch all our episodes, subscribe on iTunes. It's free. Head over to www.lovingthesnowlife.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Loving the Snow Life. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, then email us on our website. Thanks to everyone who leaves a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to to share our episodes on your social media.